I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You probably know that those are the lyrics to a U2 song called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. But what you might not know is that that's a picture of the audience of the book of Hebrews, where they are at spiritually. And it's a picture of the nation of Israel. And it's a picture of us when we run to sin to find joy and satisfaction. Yes, as a Christian, I have climbed the highest mountains, and I have run through fields, and I have crawled, and I have scaled city walls to be with Jesus. But there are times when I don't find my satisfaction in God, and in the moments when I'm not satisfied with God, I essentially say to Jesus, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And in these times when I want sin, I will do anything to get it. There are times when I climb mountains to get sin. Times when I run through fields to get sin. Times when I have crawled to get sin. And times when I have scaled city walls to get sin. But my experience is that every single time I do those things in order to feast on sin, to find satisfaction in sin, every single time I always at some point end up saying to, to that sin and about that sin, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And my hunch is you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Hebrews were in danger of this happening. They were being tempted to turn away from Jesus and back to the old covenant, back to all the types and shadows in the Old Testament that were pointing forward to Jesus. They were a group of Jewish people predominantly, a group of Jewish churches who became Christians and they were now wondering if Jesus was truly better than what they left behind. They were having second thoughts about the gospel. They were beginning to discuss amongst themselves, is Jesus better than Moses? Is the church better than the temple? Were the promises of the Old Testament really fulfilled in Jesus? Is he the true Messiah? Is Jesus really better? The Hebrews had heard the gospel that Moses testified to Jesus they had heard that the promises in the Old Testament had found their fulfillment in Jesus, but they responded to that truth by saying, but we still haven't found what we're looking for. Maybe the answer lies back in the Old Covenant. They were beginning to discuss amongst themselves, is Jesus better than Moses? Is the church better than the temple? Were the promises in the Old Testament really fulfilled in Jesus? Is he the true Messiah? Is Jesus really better? And what they needed to hear and what we need to hear today is this. Don't let your heart grow cold. And that's what the pastor who is preaching this sermon in the book of Hebrews will say to the churches that he is preaching to. He wants to show them that Jesus is is better. 
And to do that, he appeals to the Old Testament scriptures, particularly Psalm 95. And so this whole section that we're entering into in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 In order to understand it, we have to understand Psalm 95 and the background of Psalm 95 because Psalm 95 gets quoted five times in this section. But notice what the preacher of Hebrews says about Psalm 95 in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. He says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... The preacher is reminding the Hebrews that Psalm 95, which he is about to quote, that Psalm 95 is the word of God spoken by the Holy Spirit, not by Moses, not by some rabbi. These are God's words. Psalm 95 are the words of the eternal God. And so the preacher reminds them of the Holy Spirit's involvement and reminds them that it's the Holy Spirit who is speaking in Psalm 95. So Psalm 95 is God's word, and God's word cuts through the human heart, and that's exactly what the Hebrews needed. They needed heart surgery. They needed their hearts to be cut open by the word of God. And that's exactly what the preacher will say in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. You probably know this verse, but let me read it to you. Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the word of God cuts through the human heart. And in the context here, the word that the preacher of Hebrews is speaking about, the word that is living and active, the word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, the word that, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, the word that divides joints and marrow, the word that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, that word is Psalm 95. The word in this context, the word that exposes human hearts is Psalm 95. Now, if you trace it to the greater context of the book of Hebrews, then the word is the Son of God, because we see in Hebrews 1.1 that says that the Lord has now spoken to us in his Son. So in the larger context, the word is the Son of God. But in the immediate context of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, that word is Psalm 95. And so the preacher quotes Psalm 95, the word that cuts, the word that divides, the word that exposes, and he does that in order to ask the Hebrews which side they are on. Are they on the side of Moses and the law? Are they on the side of Jesus and the gospel? The word divides people into two categories. You are either united to Christ by faith or you aren't. God's word, and it's here, Psalm 95, exposes you for who you are. It strips your heart naked, and that's exactly what Psalm 95 is about. And the context of Psalm 95 is that it's a call to worship. And that's why it was our call to worship this morning at the beginning of our service. And it reminds God's people of who God is and who they are as his people. So Psalm 95 is a very gospel-dense 
psalm. It recounts how God is the rock of our salvation, how he is the the great God, how he is the great king above all gods, how he is our maker, how he is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. So Psalm 95 is very thick with the gospel. And then out of nowhere in Psalm 95, all of a sudden, it takes a turn and the mood of Psalm 95 shifts and it gets very serious and very somber. It goes from this very warm invitation to come and worship Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, a very warm invitation to God's people to come and worship Him and it switches to a warning to not leave God, to not reject the Lord. And so let's read that solemn warning portion of Psalm 95 as it appears, as it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 3. So Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. He's quoting Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So Hebrews 3 quotes Psalm 95, which ends with the Lord saying that he loathed that generation that came out of Egypt. Psalm 95 is the word that exposes you. It's the word that cuts through your heart. It's the word that divides. And so the preacher of Hebrews is essentially asking the Hebrews, whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of those who are loathed by the Lord? Or do you want to be on the side of those who are loved by the Lord? And it was the generation that came out of bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh, the generation that crossed the Red Sea, that the Lord loathed. It was a very critical moment in the history of the nation of Israel that is the basis for the warning here in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 3 and 4. And it happened during the wilderness warnings after they left Egypt. And it was a very significant part of their history because it gets referred to over and over again in both the Old and New Testament. Now what moment was it? It was that moment in Exodus 17 when the nation of Israel was in the wilderness at Rephidim and they started complaining about not having any water to drink. So they start complaining and grumbling to Moses that the Lord brought them out into the desert just so that they could die of thirst. Think about that. In spite of everything that they had seen God do, all of his goodness that they had seen, they finally get to Rephidim. There's no water. They're thirsty. And in spite of what they've seen, they said, God, have you brought us out here so that we'll die of thirst? Think about that. They saw what Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, did to Egypt and he did to Pharaoh. They saw all the signs that Yahweh performed in Egypt, the Nile River turning to blood, the the plague of frogs and gnats and flies, the, the death of the Egyptian livestock, the boils that broke out all over the skin of the Egyptians, the hail, the locusts. 
the darkness that came over Egypt and the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. They saw the pillar of cloud and fire, the cloud that the Lord gave them to keep them cool in the hot desert sun and the fire at night that hovered over them to give them light and to give them warmth as the temperatures dropped at night in the desert. They saw all of those things. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw Yahweh destroy Pharaoh's army and they even gathered manna from heaven. And after seeing all of these things, seeing all of these miracles, that generation had the audacity to complain and grumble and to say, why did the Lord bring us out into the desert just so that we will die of thirst? It's astonishing when you think about it, but it shows you just how sinful people are. And so Moses ends up naming that place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because they were quarreling with Moses, and they put the Lord to the test there. Now, understand that this wasn't just your average run-of-the-mill grumbling, okay? It's like when, it wasn't like when you go to Starbucks, and you're craving a vanilla latte, and you get in line, and they say, oh, sorry, we're out of vanilla, and you're like, ugh, and you grumble and complain. This is not that kind of grumbling and complaining. It's not some one-time thing, because if that was the case, then the Lord would loathe all of us, right? He would wipe all of us out in the Starbucks drive-thru. It's much deeper than that. They put the Lord to the test. What does that mean? What does it mean that they put Yahweh to the test? When Israel put the Lord to the test, it means they were asking, is the Lord really among us? Has he abandoned us in the wilderness? And here's why it was a serious situation. It was a matter of faith. They were basically asking, do we believe that God is here among us or not? And they may have actually been looking at the cloud by day that was hovering over them as they were asking these questions, as they were putting the Lord to the test. Most likely, the cloud was hovering over them by day, protecting them from the desert heat. They could see the cloud with their eyes, and yet they're still asking, is the Lord among us? Is he really here? And at its root, here's the problem. It was unbelief. They did not believe that the Lord brought them out of Egypt. They did not believe that Moses was their leader. They did not believe God's word. They did not believe God's promises were true. It was unbelief. And it was in this moment in Exodus 17, this moment that gets picked up in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 where God's people are warned, don't be like Israel in Exodus 17. Don't put the Lord to the test like they did at Rephidim. Don't be unbelievers. Don't reject the covenant of God. It is this unbelief that Yahweh loathed. It wasn't just that they complained about not having water. It wasn't just once or twice that they complained. It goes much, much deeper than that. It was unbelief. They did not believe God's promises. They were actually turning away from the Lord. It was a willful disbelief, a willful turning away from the Lord, even though they could see all the evidence of his grace all around them. They were rejecting the Lord. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews 
picks up Psalm 95 to warn the Hebrews that they are in danger of doing what Israel did at Rephidim. If the Hebrews want to turn back to Moses, if they want to turn back to the law to be justified, if they want to turn back to the Old Covenant, if they want to turn back to the Old Testament sacrifices in order to find the forgiveness of their sins, then the preacher of Hebrews is telling them that they are making a willful decision to reject the Lord. And so the preacher of Hebrews is saying here, don't be like Israel. They did not believe. They went astray in their hearts. They hardened their hearts. They rejected the Lord. Basically, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, don't let your heart grow cold. And that's what happened to that generation of Israelites. They saw Yahweh's provision and they rejected him. But not just at Rephidim. The text tells us for 40 years they did not believe. They put Yahweh to the test. And because of that, the Lord loathed that generation. And he swore that none of them would see the promised land. Only two people got to go into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Remember what happened in Numbers 14? At kind of the culmination of this 40 years of putting the Lord to the test, they send out the 12 spies and only Joshua and Caleb say, it's a wonderful land, we can take the inhabitants there. And the other 10 grumbled and complained and they caused the entire nation of Israel to grumble and complain at Numbers 14. And at that point, the Lord said, I've had it. Now I swear in my wrath, none of you will enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. So this was not Israel saying, I'm struggling to believe, Lord. I have doubts, Lord. I believe, help my unbelief, make my heart believe that you are better, Lord, because I'm struggling to believe the gospel right now. Help me, help me. It wasn't that, because we've all experienced that many times in our lives. And God doesn't loathe us when that happens. Amen? We've all had days where we didn't trust God, days where we didn't trust his promises, days where we doubted, doubted his goodness, days where we struggled to believe, days where our faith was weak. This was not that. This is not that at all with Israel. This testing by Israel is an outright rejection of God. It was unbelief, as the preacher of Hebrews says in verses 16 through 19. So let's look what he says there. We'll skip verses 12 through 14, come back to them in a moment. But notice that it's their unbelief that kept them out of the promised land. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now the rest that's being described here in these verses is a physical Place. It'll, it'll get elaborated in the book of Hebrews to that final rest that we have on the new heavens and the new earth. But here in the context is that place of physical rest, meaning they were never able to enter into the promised land where they would, be, they would rest from the attacks of their enemies because the Lord would be protecting them. The generation being described here never got to enter into that kind of rest because of their unbelief. They never entered the promised land because of what culminated at Numbers 14 when they were grumbling and complaining. Now why? It was because of their unbelief. 
They heard, but they did not believe. They saw, but they did not believe. They were disobedient. They did not believe that God was truly among them, even though they saw many, many, many signs. Their unbelief kept them out of Canaan, out of the promised land. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews gives the Hebrews this warning, which is the first of many warnings in his sermon. He's saying to the Hebrews, don't be like Israel at Rephidim. Don't be like Israel in Numbers 14. Don't reject what you have seen of the Lord. And he's saying this to a group of churches, and he warns them because he doesn't know who is a believer in those churches and who is not a believer. And by giving his warning to these churches, he's saying that you can be a part of the people of God. You can be a part of the visible people of God, the visible church. You can be a member of the church. You can attend church week after week after week and still not truly be regenerate, not be born again, not truly be a Christian, not be in union with Christ. You can see God doing Many, many things and still not be a believer. You can witness baptism. You can be baptized. You can even partake of the Lord's Supper. You can see God transforming lives through his gospel. You can see and observe God moving among his people, moving in the church just like he did with Israel. And you can still not believe just like Israel. Now, Please understand something here. I am not saying that you can lose your salvation. Please understand me. I am not saying that you can quote unquote lose your salvation. Because listen, if you could lose your salvation, it was dependent on you, you would lose it, right? I am not saying you can lose your salvation. We don't believe that here at Grace. Once you are saved, once you are regenerate, once you are made alive, once you are born again, once you're in union with Christ, once you are, as Colossians 1 said, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, once that happened, that's true for you forever. Nothing can change your union with Christ. We believe in the perseverance of the saints here at Grace. So this warning passage and the many others that will come in the book of Hebrews are not warnings that you can lose your salvation. They are warnings that apply two ways. Number one, first to the unbeliever. The unbeliever that is in the church and is hearing the letter to the Hebrews being read out loud and is hearing the word of God preached is being warned not to have unbelief. They're being warned that you can be among the people of God and not really belong to the people of God. And this is where God's word divides and cuts and exposes people. But the warning also applies to the believer. These warning passages are also reminders to Christians, to those united to Christ by faith. They're warnings to us to not play around with sin. They're warnings to us that sin can and will harden a person's heart. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion 
Again, the preacher quotes Psalm 95 here again. And he gives us the warning to not let sin deceive you because sin can and will harden your heart to the Lord and to his gospel. And this is why we need warnings in the new covenant, even though our salvation is secure. We need warnings in the new covenant, even though our salvation is secure. We need warnings as believers because of the deceptive and hardening nature of sin. And the reason why we need to preach the warning passages is because, one, it's in the text. I mean, it's in the verse. So we want to preach what God's Word says, right? The Holy Spirit says it in His Word, then we need to preach it. But number two... We need to preach warning passages because unbelievers may be present in the church service and they need to hear that they need to leave unbelief behind and place their faith and trust in Jesus. But number three, believers need to be reminded of the dangers of indwelling sin. We need to be reminded and warned of the dangers of not killing sin, not mortifying sin, not putting sin to death. We need to be reminded that at the root of all sin is unbelief. Unbelief in the promises of God. Unbelief in the goodness of God. Unbelief in the truth that only Jesus can satisfy our hearts. And so the warning passages are given to confront unbelief. And please understand this. Unbelief and disobedience are not the same thing. Unbelief is the root of all sin. And disobedience is the fruit of that unbelief. So it was the nation of Israel's unbelief that led them to, cr- to grumble, that led them to be disobedient. Their unbelief led them to complain. It led them to challenge Moses' leadership. So unbelief and disobedience are not the same thing. Unbelief is the root of all sin. Unbelief in the goodness of God and what he says. Unbelief is the root of all sin, and disobedience is the fruit of that unbelief. The unbelief of the Israelites that God was not present among them led them to the disobedience of grumbling and whining and complaining and challenging Moses. Disobedience is the fruit of unbelief. So the warning here is against having an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from God, meaning you can be an unbeliever. You can be a part of the people of God. It's a warning to the unbeliever. You can be a part of the people of God, but not really be a part of the people of God. But it's also a warning to believers to be aware of the dangers of sin. It's a warning to not let your heart grow cold. Because when your heart gets cold, you fall away from God, meaning your fellowship is hindered. You don't fall away from God, meaning you lose your salvation. We don't believe that. We don't believe the Bible teaches that. But you fall away, meaning your communion with God will suffer. Your relationship with God will suffer. When a Christian falls away, they don't lose their salvation, but they will lose their joy, and they will lose their peace, and they will lose their comfort. In other words, their communion with God will be hindered. Our union with Christ never changes. That is rock solid, no matter what we do. But our communion with God may suffer. There is no ebb and flow in our union with Christ. But our communion with God does fluctuate. God's love for us is secure no matter what we do. 
That's our union. But our love for God can be a roller coaster ride. Amen? That's communion with God. There's ebb and flow with our communion with God, but never, ever, ever our union. And if we play with sin, if we let our hearts grow cold, if we neglect the spiritual disciplines like prayer and fellowship and service and reading the Bible, then our communion with God will suffer. Our union with Christ will never, ever, ever be at stake. But our communion with God can and will suffer. And we've all been there before, haven't we? And if you're there this morning, I plead with you, don't let your heart grow cold. So the warning in Hebrews 3 is to prevent their communion with God to suffer. It's not a warning that their union will suffer. It's a warning to prevent believers from having their communion with God suffer. A warning to prevent an evil, unbelieving heart that makes them drift in their affections to the Lord. And when your heart gets cold, suddenly sin will seem like what you're looking for. Whatever flavor of sin it is for you. Whenever your heart gets cold, suddenly sin will seem like it's what you're looking for. When your heart gets cold, suddenly sin and the devil will appear as warm. And Bono said it best in that song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. When your heart is cold, when your heart is as cold as a stone to the Lord and to the things of the Lord, then the devil's hand will feel warm in the night. When your heart is cold, sin will feel like sunshine warming you. When your heart is cold, what you need is a warm embrace of Christ. And that's what faith is. As John Calvin said in his commentary in Ephesians, faith is not a distant view but a warm embrace of Christ. This is what the Israelites needed, but they had unbelief. Faith is not a distant view. Faith is a warm embrace of Christ. Faith is a warm embrace of Christ and all his benefits. And not just his benefits. Because how many Christians just want his benefits, but they don't want Jesus Faith is a warm embrace of Jesus first, who he is, and then an embrace of all of his benefits. But when your heart is cold, sin and the devil will appear as warm. When your heart is cold, the devil will hold your hand and his hand will be warm in the night, warm in the darkness. And that's why when you and I walk down the path of sin, it never satisfies. Never satisfies long term. It never satisfies like Jesus. When your heart is cold, cold as a stone, and you walk with the devil, he'll hold your hand in the night, and it will be warm for a season. But you'll always end up saying, 
I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Sin never satisfies long term. And that's why we need this exhortation this morning. Don't let your heart grow cold. There's someone here today and your heart is cold to the things of the Lord. And you have walked with the Lord before. And you have known his goodness. And the Holy Spirit says to you today, don't let your heart grow cold. We need gospel exhortations like the ones given here by the preacher of Hebrews. We need gospel exhortations so that the deceitfulness of sin doesn't harden our hearts. We need gospel exhortations so that our communion with God does not suffer. We need gospel exhortations and gospel reminders of how sin works, how it functions And John Owen has some of the best reminders of the nature of sin. He said this, and I've read it to you before. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. Sin always comes and it's modest in its proposals. It doesn't tell you how it wants to work. It doesn't tell you its goal, its end. It's just enough to get you to come in. Life is made up of 10,000 little moments where sin comes with its modest proposals. And in these little moments, we're sowing seeds. In these 10,000 little moments of life, we're either killing sin, recognizing its modest proposals, recognizing its goal, where it wants to take us, or we're giving it room to wreak havoc in our lives. And that's why you just don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to reject the Lord. I'm going to despise the Lord. That's why you don't wake up in the morning, even though before you, even after you had your coffee, you don't just wake up and say, I'm done with the Lord today. You just don't wake up one day and say, I'm pulling out of church. I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm not sure the Bi- what the Bible says about that matter is right. I'm not sure what the Bible says about marriage is right. You just don't wake up one day and decide that. You don't wake up one day and say, I don't love my spouse anymore. That doesn't happen. It happens slowly as your communion with God begins to diminish, as your communion with God begins to evaporate. It happens very slowly and very subtly. And John Owen reminds us of the need to be aware of the subtleties of sin. He said this also. Spiritual wisdom consists in finding out the subtleties, policies, and depths of any indwelling sin. To trace this serpent in all its turnings and windings. To be able to say at its most secret actings, this is your old way and course and I know what you aim at. That's spiritual wisdom is recognizing how you struggle with whatever flavor of sin it is in your life. And so that you can look at that sin and say, I know where you want to take me. I know your course. I know your windings. Spiritual wisdom is knowing how sin works. It's knowing that sin is deadly 
That sin is sneaky. It's knowing that you have to die to it all day, every day, in all of the 10,000 little moments of life. Every temptation to sin, every indulgence in sin is one little moment, but it's not really a little moment. It's a significant moment. And if you don't grasp this, you'll relax and let down your guard. And then 10,000 little moments later, you'll realize that you have been sowing all along and suddenly it's harvest time. That's the deceptive nature of sin. Sin doesn't show up on your doorstep and ring the doorbell. And when you answer the door, it says, hello, I'm lust. Good to meet you. I want to destroy your life. So indulge me for a while and you'll be sucked into my web and trapped. And I'll ruin your marriage. I'll ruin your family. I'll ruin your church. I'll ruin your life. Where does it ring the doorbell and say, hello, I'm bitterness. Nice to meet you. Indulge me for a while, and you'll be sucked into my web and trapped, and I'll ruin your marriage, and I'll ruin your family, I'll ruin your church, I'll ruin your life. Or sin doesn't show up on your doorstep and ring the doorbell and say, hello, I'm anger, or worry, or doubt, or jealousy, or gossip, or slander. I want to, and I will ruin your life. I will utterly destroy it if you let me come in. Sin doesn't show up and show you all of its cards. It's sneaky, it's deceptive, it's subtle. Again, John Owen said, sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if left alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, it might have its own course. It would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Lust wants to grow up into adultery. Unbelief wants to grow up into atheism. So it is not a small thing to fight sin. It's your very life work, Christian. Sin aims at the utmost, even though it's modest in its first proposals. That's how sin works. That's how our adversary, the devil, works. He wants to ruin us. Satan's goal is not to just get you to disbelieve. If he could have his way, your unbelief would lead to atheism. Unclean thoughts would lead to full-blown adultery. Thoughts of anger would lead to murder. This is why we must stand firm in the faith. This is why we must cling to and believe the promises of God. This is why we must fight to do whatever it takes to believe all that God is for us in his son Jesus. This is why we must gather here every Sabbath and be exhorted with the gospel. This is why we must be involved in discipleship relationships throughout the week where we can exhort others with the gospel and have them exhort us with the gospel. The warning is clear, but there's a caring pastoral tone behind it. Don't. Let your heart grow cold. And so how do we keep our hearts warm? How do we keep our communion with God? How do we keep our hearts warm to the Lord? We do it by hearing gospel exhortations every day. We do it by considering Jesus. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, God knew that we'd be dumb. calls us sheep for a reason. He says, here, I'm going to make it real simple for you. If you want to keep your heart warm, you just look to Jesus. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. God knew we'd be slow Dumb, sheep, messy. And so the prescription is very simple. It's the gospel that even our kids can understand it. We do it by considering Jesus. We do it by exhorting one another with the good news. 
We do it by what doing Robert Murray Machane said. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. And let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. How do we keep our hearts warm? How do we keep our communion with God? How do we keep our hearts warm to the Lord? We do it by hearing gospel exhortations every day. We do it by considering Jesus. We do it by exhorting one another with the good news. We do it by doing what Richard Sibbs said, which I read to you last week, but please indulge me because I need to hear it again. As when things are cold, we bring them to the fire to heat and melt. So bring we our cold hearts to the fire of the love of Christ. Consider we of our sins against Christ and of Christ's love toward us. Dwell upon this meditation. Think what great love Christ hath shown unto us and how little we have deserved. And this will make our hearts to melt and be as pliable as wax before the sun. If thou wilt have this tender and melting heart, then be always under the sunshine of the gospel. How do you keep your heart warm? How do you keep your communion with God? How do you keep yourself from having an evil, unbelieving heart? How do you hold your original confidence firm to the end? How do you avoid letting your heart grow cold? Answer, be always under the sunshine of the gospel. Answer, live much in the smiles of God. Answer, bask in his beams. Answer, consider Jesus. And consider what Bono says about Jesus at the end of, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He says, you broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. Oh, my shame. You know I believe it. Do you believe it today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for sinners like us. How easy it is, Father, for my heart to get cold, to turn away from you, to find satisfaction in a million other things, and I'm sure it's true of my brothers and sisters here today. Would you help us to be a church that is busy with gospel exhortations on Sunday morning and throughout the week. We would pray for one another, love one another, encourage one another so that we don't get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Would you make us a church that just keeps coming back time and time again to that very simple gospel message? Would you do it for our joy? Would you do it for the health of our hearts? And would you do it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.